Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow's furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm a Leninist. Lenin wanted to destroy the state, and that's my goal, too. I want to bring everything crashing down and destroy all of today's establishment. Jeez, bro. Chill out. So that, my friends, is Steve Bannon, who's Trump's new chief strategist. And he's the former chairman of Breitbart Media. Another quote for you. We're going to drain the swamp. That was Trump himself. Sounds comforting, doesn't it? So welcome to Reconsider. Today we are going to be talking about revolutions, kinda. We're going to be talking about the idea of new political institutions, new political processes, but not in the context of like toppling everything, even though that's what Mr. Bannon claims he wants to do. And of course, this will all be in the context of our new president-elect, President Trump. So Steve Bannon, who was the campaign manager for Trump's presidential campaign, has a new position, a very controversial position as his Trump's new chief strategist. And that's something that Bannon said a couple of years ago in an interview. Now, a somewhat related quote written in the Wall Street Journal just a couple of days ago, which takes a slightly different perspective. Quote, like it or not, Mr. Bannon will need the establishment in Congress to pass Mr. Trump's agenda, persuade the public, and govern successfully. Things didn't turn out so well for Lenin. So what does this mean exactly? 
Well, on some level, there's a balance, or at least some political commentators and analysts are saying that there is going to need to be a balance between a lot of the campaign rhetoric and promises made by Trump and some of the political positions claimed by Steve Bannon in the past, and the necessity to actually retain some degree of competence in the government administration in order to actually make sure the things run, make sure the trains run on time, so to speak, and pull the right levers. Now, Trump wants to, quote, drain the swamp, but turns out he's actually appointing a lot of insiders to his cabinet. Rance Priebus, who was the head of the RNC, he's kind of like the consummate insider. Trump had a meeting with Mitt Romney, another establishment Republican player. Rumor on the street is Mitt Romney might end up being the Secretary of State. So some people are, and I would say, rightfully worried about the radical changes Trump might make. Others are criticizing him because they're afraid that he might end up just looking out for special interests like himself and a lot of his rich friends and real estate development buddies, contrary to the promises that he made in his campaign. Yeah, and some of the other people that Trump is giving the nod to for his cabinet are former lobbyists. And what's interesting, of course, is that Trump campaigned very hard against lobbying Uh, and against the lobbying interests that he believed controlled D.C. Now, this might set some eyes rolling, but it's also just worth noting that if you look back to 2008, Obama promised that he'd have absolutely no lobbyists in his White House ever, but within a few months, he'd broken that promise a few dozen times over already. It's not too surprising when a fairly inexperienced, which Obama was, or totally inexperienced, which Trump is, new politician to the White House makes a lot of lofty claims about their capacity to do stuff on their own and without help from insiders. And then when reality comes crashing down, they realize that they're going to have to get some help. So on this show, as on all shows, we try to state our own biases or opinions up front if we think there might be any. So I'm just going to go ahead and throw mine out. On this show, while we will be talking about some structural considerations. And all I mean by that are structures, institutions in place in the government that might have some effect on how Trump wants to implement policies in a way that goes against most narratives that you see in the media right now. What I don't necessarily mean is that we shouldn't be worried. And me personally, I think a healthy dose of concern given what Trump said in his campaign is warranted. So that's where I'm coming from. But we're going to talk about some restraints that he might run into anyways. And I'll just add that I'm not advocating for any of the particular positions that we'll be talking about today. And while we got you, just a quick reminder. For those of you not yet familiar with our social media platforms, we're at ReconsiderPod on both Facebook and Twitter. And if you follow us, you'll get a lot of great content that we're sharing that we think is important to keep up with. You can find us at reconsidermedia.com slash podcast. You'll be able to see all of our episodes there. And also, if you're on iTunes or another podcatcher, a review would be lovely uh, as it'll help us reach other listeners that might be interested in our content. So to put Trump's revolution of sorts into context, we can take a look at George Freeman. We were inspired by Mr. Freeman's post on revolutions, and he mentioned that Trump is really going through a, or attempting a political revolution, if not a social revolution. So not overturning everything, but taking down sort of the old establishment and bringing in a new. For context, uh, Freeman has been in charge of Stratfor and geopolitical futures for a long time. He's a well-known analyst. And uh, 
has particular renown for being able to predict long-term trends in global economy and geopolitical structure. Yeah. George Freeman wrote this article recently, and it kind of got us thinking, and we thought that his take was interesting enough that we wanted to use it as a jumping off point and touch on a couple other points. Now, before we do that, Eric mentioned an interesting dichotomy or contrast, really, if you want to call it that, a political revolution versus a social revolution. What's the difference? It kind of depends on which academic you're talking to, but sort of the modern piece of literature on social revolutions is by a professor named Theta Scotch-Pole. She wrote a book called States and Social Revolutions in 1979, and it's a comparative political analysis of three different revolutions. So it's like a case study analysis of the French Revolution, 1789, the communist Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, 1917, and Mao's Revolution in China. The distinction that she uses is a political revolution, by definition, is more frequent because a social revolution is a subset of a political revolution. A political revolution is just a changing, an upheaval, and re-implementation of new types of political processes, new types of government administrations that then govern society in new ways. Now, a social revolution has all of those characteristics, but... It also entails establishing a new relationship between different social classes in a society. So it's more radical. Now, the Bolshevik Revolution was a socialist revolution, or it was a social revolution, a socialist and a social revolution, because classes ended up identifying with one one another in a very different way than they did during Tsarist Russia. So that's what we mean by political versus social revolution. And George Freeman is talking about a political revolution when it comes to Trump. So when you're leading a revolution, you ultimately need to balance new loyal people who are going to really do whatever you want them to with people who are competent enough to know the old system. And the problem here is that a lot of the times people who are very loyal to you in a revolution are new upstarts just like you are because you're rebelling against the establishment. So... Just imagine that you yourself are a revolutionary leader and you've just overthrown or are in the process of overthrowing an established government, something that you and your supporters have rebelled against. So far, your primary responsibility has been oratorical. You've gotten up on soapboxes. You've delivered radical, yeah, yeah, inspirational rhetoric in a way that drives people to action. Now, Once you have this critical mass of people who are willing to be driven to action, it's easier to direct resources and commit these people to essentially the mass acts of violence that you want them to in order to eliminate prior governing structures, because really that's what revolutions are, organized mass acts of violence. That's great and all, but at some point, if your revolution is going well, that's great and all, but at some point... You're going to need to get people to chill out a little bit. Xander, you're such a Californian. Chill, bro. People are going to need to chill out. And they're going to need to start going back to the way things were, kind of. Or at least getting back to running things and, so to speak, getting the trains to run on time. Yeah, they still got to get up and go to work every day. They got to put down the guns and go like, oh, look at all this paperwork on the bureaucracy table that we have to deal with. Exactly. The problem is that if you purge everyone from the prior administration, that is, 
kill everyone from the leadership all the way down, then you might find yourself as this upstart revolutionary leader in a situation where no one really knows how to get those trains to run on time, how to distribute funds to the right people, social security, make sure that welfare payments are getting paid, make sure that taxes are getting collected. Yeah, this is one of the things that we've learned from Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. He pointed out that the skills it takes to campaign and the skills it takes to govern are very different. And in particular, when we look at a sort of the skills that it takes to win a campaign via rhetoric as opposed to via organization, right? So when we're talking about the skills to get up and say stuff that gets people going rather than go around and network and build a ground game and manage a bunch of people, that has absolutely nothing to do with running a government. And so this is where a lot of revolutionaries start to run into trouble. Exactly. Basically, you can't purge everyone. Since the society that you're trying to build, the new society, the revolutionary society, would then just collapse around you when it becomes your turn to govern. And guess what? That probably means that in this state of general chaos and anarchy, someone's coming for your head next. And that would be no bueno. Did I mention? We're in Spain right now, podcasting together. We're looking at each other. It's kind of weird. In Madrid, yeah. And Eric's been working on a Spanish. He took one month of a Pimsleur course. And si. as you heard, no bueno. He uh, He's really making progress. It's about all I've learned. He can order tapas in Spanish. Yes. Un tapa, por favor. <laughs> and wine and drinks. Vino tinto, por favor. That's really all you need. In That's all you country. need. <laughs> so, so let's say you need to purge just the right amount of people. That way you have some degree of expertise left over from your revolutionary fervor. Career civil servants, however, the people that you're probably going to need to keep around because they know how to pull all of those levers, probably won't particularly like the fact that you're completely destroying the organizations that they've committed their professional careers to. So it's hard to know if they're really going to get behind your whole revolution thing. So again, this is a careful balance that needs to be struck between retaining the people who actually know how to run a government and inserting new people who will be sufficiently loyal to you to carry out your new revolutionary ideas and programs. So the example that George Friedman in his article uses is Lenin and Trotsky. So Lenin basically instigated the revolution and Trotsky was one of his very very loyal followers that in a lot of photos ended up getting removed because he ended up getting purged because the revolution eats its children my friends Trotsky was a guy that Lenin went to and said hey Trotsky how about you organize this thing that we're going to call the red army because you know 4 years after we got this whole revolutionary this whole revolution thing going turns out there's there's people who don't like it and there's this counter revolution thing and they're calling themselves the whites so why don't we call ourselves the reds why don't you go make me a red army so that we could fight back against the counter revolutionaries trotsky said sure bro no problem and i'm pretty sure i'm paraphrasing that exactly trotsky so hotski right now <laughs> Trotsky has no problem with this request from Lenin. The problem is Trotsky has never served in any army in any military capacity whatsoever. He's never commanded forces, but now he's responsible for not only organizing and raising an entire new army and military structure, but essentially the revolution depends on it 
Because if he can't do this in a very, very short amount of time, then the counter-revolutionaries, who, by the way, have generals who have served in these military capacities for a while, are going to beat them. And this whole Bolshevism thing is going to be done with. However, Lenin knew that Trotsky would be completely loyal to him. So in this particular case, loyalty outweighed experience. And luckily for the Reds, they had a whole lot more bodies to throw at the problem than the Whites did. Revolutions turn out to be a pretty bloody affair. It's why I'm generally against them. Mm. So what does this all have to do with Trump? Well, Donald Trump is in a very interesting position. He's got a revolution going, and we'll talk about what that revolution is trying to do in a moment. But he's totally inexperienced, as are many of his loyalists, like Steve Bannon. So he needs some insiders. He's already We already talked about Romney, some lobbyists, Priebus, and he's blasted these guys in the past. He's picked big fights with guys like Mitt Romney and Priebus. These were people who didn't want to touch him, thinking that he would lose is nonviolent revolution. And they're not even close to 100% on board with his agenda. But he's reaching out to them anyway. Now, what is the Donald Trump revolution? Well, let's take a look at some policy platforms. Here is revolutionary ideas. One of them is congressional term limits, which would radically change how politics works in D.C. To a large extent, a lot of D.C., is run by Congress people who are very, very experienced, who know the insides or the ins and outs of massive bureaucracies really well, who know each other, who have developed lots and lots of relationships and strong networks. Some people think this is good. Some people think this is bad. Donald Trump thinks it's bad. He wants term limits. And if those term limits happen and are particularly short, DC is going to change a lot, whether it's good or bad. He also wants a five-year ban on officials from the White House or the rest of the executive branch taking lobbying jobs. So this resonates a lot with people. Lobbyists are literally at the top of the list of groups that Americans consistently think have too much power, beating out banks and other major corporations. So it's a pretty popular idea in a lot of ways to say, look, you can't have officials that know the ins and outs then running off and being lobbyists. But because lobbying is in its own way such an important arm of government for government to be able to relate to the large institutions that are non-governmental, shaking it up is going to have a big effect as well. And finally, and most importantly, Trump wants to challenge free trade. He wants to challenge the orthodox economic theory that has persisted in the United States for decades. Free trade has been a consistent platform of different kinds of liberal economic policies, whether you're Keynesian, whether you're free market, whether you're neoliberal, doesn't matter. Free trade is a good thing. And Trump is the first guy in a long time to become president who is seriously trying to return to a form of protectionism. So he wants to renegotiate the North American Free Trade Agreement. And if they're not willing to renegotiate, he says he's going to leave. He wants to kill a bunch of trade deals. He wants to, quote, go after companies that, quote, send jobs overseas. I don't know quite what that means, but he wants to stop them from being able to source materials from outside of the country. 
And perhaps most radically, he wants to impose very, very large tariffs on imported goods. So his number for Mexican imported goods will be 35%. His number on Chinese imported goods would be 45%. So this is essentially possibly going to kick off a trade war. So this is a huge revolution. It would be a massive departure from what the United States is used to. And we won't get into all the details on this show, although we're thinking about doing another episode on this. But some of these new trade policies, you might be thinking, well, it all needs to go through Congress, right? Well, it turns out the way that some prior trade agreements, some pre-existing laws in the book books work, would actually allow Trump to implement some of these protectionist measures more or less unilaterally. So there is some power in the executive there. Donald Trump is inheriting the most powerful presidency since possibly ever, or since probably Franklin Delano Roosevelt's fourth term. There's a lot he can do, but he can't do it all alone. Even total dictators have fallen and failed when they have not engaged the establishment and gotten help. So what can Trump learn from the past? Well, we've got a few examples of similar, quote, revolutions or regime changes that have had to deal with this, and a few that have failed to deal with this, and we'll see how they went. So, of course, Lenin's revolution had this mix. He kept a lot of the local bureaucracy in place, even though he destroyed the monarchy that was on top. If we look to World War II, there was a lot of regime change from outside rather than inside. So if you look, for example, at the Germans occupying France, they occupied some of it, but the bulk of it, they actually allowed French capitulators to govern instead of them. So they worked with these insiders in France that were used to governing the area, and it made things go a lot smoother. Similarly, when the United States conquered half of Germany, there was an attempt to denazify, that is, take Nazis entirely out of the equation, or out of government, and the occupying generals actually pushed back on it and said, look, we need people who know how to run the trains, quite literally, and we don't have anyone else. So denazification is going to have to go more slowly. So Nazis, a lot of little Nazis, stayed in power for a long time in Germany after World War II was over. And if we look at Spain after the fall of Franco, we see something similar. Yeah, so Franco was the dictator that essentially took over Spain following the Spanish Civil War in 1936 and 1939, and then he ruled until 1975 when he died. In 1978, Spain adopted a new constitution that is still in effect today, and a couple of political parties came out of that, one of which is the Popular Party, and the other of which is essentially the Socialist Party. Now, the Popular Party, the Conservative Party, was basically comprised entirely of former Franco administrators. So even though the dictatorship formally ended and a new constitution was instituted and it became a freer society, at least, much of one major political party was still completely controlled by former dictatorship people. And the political environment in Spain today is, if you've been following it, somewhat tense. There's a new political upstart called Podemos, which literally means we can. And part of the animosity that exists against the current political parties is based around this idea that 
the people running the popular party, the conservative party, are still essentially descendants of these Franco administrators. So a lot of Spaniards feel that while in 1978 a social agreement was made to just look forward and kind of put the past behind them, lots of people from this former, formerly oppressive administration basically kept governing for themselves and left a lot of people out. Now, I'm not going to make a judgment on that, but that is certainly influencing the rise of this new political party, Podemos, that is saying, look, the socialists and the conservatives are basically working together now for themselves and locking the rest of the people out. And that's where they're gaining a lot of their base. So often the story with these revolutions that are fairly successful and move forward, or these regime changes that are successful and move forward, is meet the new boss pretty much the same as the old boss. Now, what happens to revolutions that have, or regime changes that have complete purges? Well, we can contrast Lenin's 1917 revolution to Mao's 1949 revolution. Now, you might say Mao stuck around. Yes, it's true. But when Mao took over, uh, the entire Guomindang, which was the nationalist government, was completely purged uh, and was either killed, imprisoned, or fled to Taiwan and then the United States. The Chinese communists were a gritty bunch, but they had no idea how to govern. And they implemented very naively the Great Leap Forward, uh, which ended up being such a massive economic disaster of central planning that at least 45 million and up to 70 million excess deaths occurred over a five-year period in China because they had no idea what they were doing. 70 million is more than died in World War II. And if it were anywhere but China, they would have been counter-revolutioned like that. One of the interesting things to me about the Chinese Communist Revolution is, as Eric mentioned, Mao is essentially fighting against the Kuomintang or the nationalists. Now, before Mao turned against the Kuomintang, they were allies. They actually worked together to conquer China and overturn the imperial system. And at some point, they faced this challenge where they said, okay, well, you know, we need to get some sort of monetary support. So where do we get that support? And the Kuomintang said, well, we should probably just end up relying on political and financial elites and we'll get some support from there. And Mao, Mao's followers basically said, nah, we'll get our, our support from elsewhere. So there was a split. And after the end of World War II, they turned on each other because it turns out revolutions, once they get started, frequently develop a life of their own. Yeah, and in fact, one of the ways that Mao stood off being counter-revolutioned was forming his own second revolution, the Cultural Revolution, which led to more millions of people dying and even deeper purges that cut the uh, that cut society even deeper. So parents were turning in their children. Sorry, children were turning in their parents for being counter-revolutionary. Doctors and teachers were being locked up en masse. The country basically collapsed at this point. Um, and had to, and at the end of that revolution, actually had its own very quiet revolution by this guy named Deng Xiaoping, who kept a lot of the old Chinese uh, communist guard in charge, but moderated things a lot. So that's one example of what happens when you purge everyone. If we look at the 2003 invasion of Iraq, we can contrast this to denazification, which went very slowly. In 2003, the United States purged the Ba'ath Party, which had been exclusively in charge of Iraq for decades. And when the Ba'ath Party was purged, a whole bunch of people that didn't really know what they were doing and didn't have the networking, the ties, the relationships with the local provinces and tribes that the Ba'ath Party had. These new people were put in charge. They had no idea what they were doing. 
And they found when the Ba'ath Party and then eventually ISIS rebelled against the government that they didn't have widespread support on the ground that they would have needed to succeed. Um, and then finally, we can look at Zimbabwe's revolution that purged a white Rhodesian government entirely. Um, and this was an almost apartheid kind of situation. So Zimbabwe's blacks rose up, led by Mugabe. Mugabe purged the government entirely and also purged the land-owning class, which was also white, and replaced it with a whole bunch of untrained people, followed by hyperinflation, almost famine because the farms didn't work, and he's tried to hold it all together through a very iron fist. So what's the lesson? The lesson is, indeed, when you're launching a revolution, don't purge everyone. Hold on to a few people on the inside. And it's worth probably making a definitional clarification here because the word purge can refer to outright killing people it can also refer to as was often the case with Mao, but not always just kind of like shoving them off to the side he would frequently send intellectuals and former party elites off into rural areas to just basically do manual labor and agriculture so as we talk about purges related to the upcoming trump administration we're not saying he's going to start killing a bunch of people we're just saying he's going to start finding new people to do the jobs. Yeah, when you get purged in the United States, you become like a commentator for 24-hour news networks, which is almost as bad <laughs> as forced labor <laughs> camps, but not quite. Watching it is certainly almost as bad as a forced labor camp. hey So for Trump to make any headway in his anti-establishment, anti-corporate, anti-trade political revolution, he's almost certainly going to need some help from the inside. So insiders find themselves facing this sort of uh, game theory-like problem, which is, do they get in, try to find a job in the Trump administration in order to help sway Trump's policies and get more of what they want? And certainly in my Facebook echo chamber, I've seen some posts about, you know, the Trump administration is hiring. If you want to make a difference, you need to sign up and try to influence it from the inside. And that's a legitimate thought. The other perspective is, do these insiders, existing civil servants, boycott Trump entirely, try to obstruct him and prevent him from getting anything that he wants, and get him to essentially shoot himself in the foot by ticking off a bunch of career administrators? Yeah, we don't know exactly how Trump would blunder if he didn't get help, but if we look at history and see how folks like Mao and Mugabe and the United States and Iraq screwed up, we do know that if he doesn't get help, he's going to stumble um, and probably get kicked out or, or at least lose power a lot faster than he would if he got help. Yeah, and again, this is kind of my opinion, but since the United States has at least sturdier institutions than a lot of the revolutions that we discussed on the show, like essentially in, in Russia in 1917, the entire country's structures were on the verge of collapse, largely due to World War I. So we're in a much stronger place than that. So even if Trump completely stumbles and falters, probably the worst thing that happens to him is he gets impeached for something or another and Pence takes his place. We're not saying that America is going to fall into a 1918 sort of Bolshevist revolution, counter-revolution situation, right? So what are some other insiders likely to do? Romney could maybe go either way. Kasich, he's probably out. He doesn't want to get involved. Paul Ryan is... Pensive? Oh, yeah. 
Yes, I get it, Eric. Now, it's possible nobody in Washington is quite sure what to expect of Trump. So right now, they're all kind of taking a cautious approach. So looking forward, let's assume that Donald Trump is fairly successful in getting some establishment Republicans to join him in the White House. If he does, we're going to see two factions in his cabinet. We're going to see the sort of alt-right revolutionaries, and we're going to see the establishment old guard. And they're going to disagree a lot. You might even call them a team of rivals. And what's interesting to look at is who's going to come out on top. Trump is very inexperienced, and a lot of his revolutionary loyalists are very inexperienced. They'll be up against the experienced old guard. But Trump is president. Mitt Romney is not. And so Trump ultimately gets to have the final say. Trump will is likely to lean heavily on his advisors and cabinet members, or else he's going to drive himself into a wall. The question is, who's ultimately going to make the better case to Donald Trump about which way he should steer the ship? So this is what we'd like to ask y'all to reconsider as Trump comes into power over the next couple of months. Which group, this upstart, alt-right, revolutionary group versus, say, the old guard, the establishment, which group is guiding the rudder? When we hear contradictory statements coming from inside of Trump's inner circle, what does that mean about the struggle for what direction they're going to take? What's really going on? And the reason this is worth reconsidering is that if you look at your Facebook feeds or news feeds, you see a lot of, hey, it's not so bad. Trump's not going to do such and such thing that you're worried about. Or it's the end of the world. Donald Trump is a Nazi. Steve Bannon is a Nazi. It's all going down. What's important to think about is that it is far more complicated than either of those narratives. A mixed revolutionary and old guard cabinet is going to mean some amount of unpredictability, but also some amount of moderating force as the tug of war for the ultimate direction of the executive takes place. So hopefully, thinking about revolutions in history and thinking about these two different factions as driving forces behind the administration is going to provide a framework to understand the seeming sort of schizophrenia and contradictory messaging that we've been seeing so far and are likely to see going forward, as well as a framework to think about the events from that inner circle as decisions come down the line in the future. So with that, remember, don't let the pundits or your Facebook friends do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Andrew signing out. And this is Eric signing out. Adios, guys. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.